Hey, it's Mark Peterson from the FEMA podcast. You know, one tool I can't live without and fits right in my pocket is the FEMA app. You can download it right to your cell phone. It has emergency alerts, safety tips, and important information to stay safe before, during, and after disasters. You can download the FEMA app on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA podcast. Building a culture preparedness. This simple but ambitious statement is one of the three key priorities outlined in FEMA's strategic plan. Needless to say, shifting the country's approach to disaster preparedness is no small undertaking. On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Dan Kanuski, FEMA's Deputy Administrator for Resilience, about how he's leading the effort to achieve this monumental task, what the agency is doing, the steps we're taking to do it, and how success will be defined in the years ahead. So Dr. Dan Kanuski, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I want to give the listeners a little bit of background on your role uh, in FEMA and also, the, you know, your role with the larger FEMA mission. You're the Deputy Administrator for Resilience, and that organization is relatively new to FEMA. Um, it's a new construct. And so talk to us a little bit about what components are part of that organization and uh, what the mission is. Sure. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary for FEMA Resilience. And this is an organization we created to align with our strategic plan, and specifically goal one, creating a culture of preparedness. Now, our organization includes pretty much all of the pre-disaster efforts of the agency. So that would include preparedness, grants, mitigation, insurance, and continuity. And we feel that by bringing these organizations together, we can best deliver on goal one, on creating that true culture preparedness. Through the restructuring of um, these preparedness programs into the resiliency organization, have you seen any kind of efficiencies or, you know, successes out of that, you know, sort of um, that combined approach to this resiliency uh, concept? Our view here was that the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. That by bringing together these various organizations and fostering conversations and cooperation between organizations that traditionally hadn't even maybe met each other before, these, many of these individuals had never even met, that good would come out of that. And that good may be something that we couldn't even project at the time that we started up a year ago. And I say that's definitely, that's definitely happened. For example, on financial preparedness, sitting down our experts on engagement and individual and community preparedness – with our insurance experts in FIMA. The conversations they've been able to have about ideas and strategies on how to close the the insurance gap at at the individual level have been remarkable. We realize that, frankly, those of us in Washington probably are not going to be able to change people's minds on our own, and we're not the most effective messenger. But those that you rely on at the local level, your realtor, or your insurance agent absolutely can. And so by combining both the, the know-how of and the contacts and building a coalition of support from the insurance community as well as the, the communities and organizations that our individual and community preparedness division works with, that that could be a real force multiplier. And it's bearing fruit. You can see that fruit being born in the MOAs that we've signed with these organizations. You can see it by 
the invitations we have to meet with, to speak to these organizations that we've never spoken before, and to show just the broader interest, whether it be the financial services community and financial education community, the, insur the insurers, with our uh, data, whether it be flood data, whether it be our household survey data, we are showing that uh, in, in a very positive way these organizations are collaborating to build a more resilient nation. Yeah, and part of that is uh, is developing sort of um, sort of a national sense of resiliency, right? So by applying all those pre-disaster programs to one sort of effort, we can kind of make things a little bit more efficient. Is that sure? I think our number one goal uh, here is frankly to make sure that we can deliver the programs here at FEMA. And then we can inspire others to take these actions, too, because here at FEMA and, frankly, any of us in the federal government, we're not going to be able to create a culture of preparedness on our own. That's going to happen with our stakeholders. That's going to happen at the state and local level with communities and individuals and families. That's where this takes place. So you hit on communities. So you talk a lot about um, in, in the, the talks that you give about building more resilient communities through risk reduction efforts. So maybe that's the first place to start in kind of talking about the whole role of resiliency. So why should communities want to take these steps uh, to, to make themselves more more resilient by taking mitigation steps or, or other steps uh, in terms of building codes? Um, how is FEMA helping those communities um, to want to take those actions? Well, of course, we want to, like I said, we want to inspire these communities to take those actions. And to do that, we need to set the bar high and say, here's what we're doing at FEMA. We're setting some uh, ambitious, but I'd say achievable goals, like quadrupling the nation's investment in mitigation. That's one of our moonshots that we intend to, to deliver on over our five-year strategic plan. And luckily, Congress has recently empowered us to help even further because it's not just about setting the targets high for FEMA. It's about setting the target high, again, for the nation. But to build up resiliency, and in this case, mitigation across the nation, it's going to require a financial investment. Congress saw that and gave us the new Building Resilient Infrastructure in, in, and Communities, BRIC, which is a great program that we will be launching soon that will provide 6% of the disaster costs in the previous year and apply them forward in the following year for a competitive nationwide mitigation uh, grant program. That's something that's completely new and very exciting and will provide, I think, a shot of certainly financial support to our state and local stakeholders to really invest in mitigation going forward. I mean, that could be a huge amount of money um, for those projects that are going to reduce the financial impacts and potentially save lives for um, the impacts of those disasters going forward. I mean, have you guys put together any numbers about what kind of how much money that might equate to? Sure. And of course, it depends since it's six percent of disaster costs. It depends what the previous year's disasters uh, look like. But on average, the, you know, for example, the 10-year average is about $300 million. If you include some of the catastrophic disasters, it goes up to more $500 million on average per year. But if you pull out any one year, it can be dramatically different, of course. Some years very little, some very large. 2017, it's estimated that based on the very busy year we had in 2017, 2018 would have yielded $3.4 billion had this program been in place. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that also then allows for communities to be thinking big in terms of the projects they might want to pursue um, in, in this area. So now there's the potential for um, you know, a competitive opportunity for some really big uh, investments in mitigation. Yeah, and, you know, those that are not as familiar with our programs may not realize that the vast majority of our mitigation funding follows a disaster, right? It's provided as HMGP, Hazard Mitigation Grant Program funding, after a presidentially declared disaster to those communities that have already been hit. Now, the thought behind that is is sound in the sense that it means that you don't want to just build back communities. You want to build them back stronger. You want to reduce the risk that led to the consequences for that particular disaster. But this new program is pre-disaster mitigation. And traditionally, we get very little funding comparatively uh, to that post-disaster mitigation funding. And also, the, it's very dependent on appropriations. It goes up and down over time based on the whims of, of policymakers. So this program is not only larger, it's a huge infusion of pre-disaster funding, but it's also more consistent because it's 6% of the funding coming out of the DRF, not based on appropriations. It's that much more consistent funding, again, based on those those disasters we've had in the previous year. So to put a finer point on it, this is opens up the opportunity for communities that maybe have not yet seen a disaster in recent years, but know that they have some sort of risk that they want to potentially uh, mitigate. Uh, this then opens up the opportunity for them to competitively uh, apply for what could be a large amount of money. That's absolutely right. And some of these communities that don't have disasters all the time. I mean, you're talking about the, the, the high-risk areas that, of course, we've seen over the past two years. It's coastal areas that have been struck by hurricanes. It's the areas out west that have been hit by wildfires. But the Midwest, in the central U.S., you know, we haven't had a busy uh, tornado season for the last couple of years. And so we might think, oh, there's no risk there. Well, the reality is it's only a matter of time. Uh, Also think about it from uh, the perspective of flooding. I was out in Nebraska a couple of weeks ago and I saw the catastrophic effects of flooding there. Most of those areas were completely unprepared. They didn't have uh, mitigation or insurance or preparedness actions in place to deal with that catastrophic flooding because it happened so rarely there. Now, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be eligible for mitigation dollars just because it hasn't happened recently. And that's really where BRIC will come into play. It will even the playing field and make sure that those areas that haven't had a disaster recently have the opportunity to make some significant mitigation investments now because it's only a matter of time that a community gets hit by a disaster. So let's switch gears here just a little bit. Um, The agency is obviously very focused on uh, individual preparedness. Uh, That is um, individuals, uh, families, um, taking it out of that sort of community discussion and talking specifically about what um, you as an individual can do to prepare for a disaster. So uh, let's talk about some of the activities that your um, organization, that the Resiliency Directorate is undertaking to help people become more prepared for disaster. Yeah, and there's so much we can do and so much we have talked about over the years here at FEMA. Specifically, go to ready.gov. You see the protective action guidance based on what you should do for a variety of scenarios before, during, and after uh, disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. 
What we really haven't talked about as an agency is how we financially prepare, right? And that's really new. And that's something, a direction we've been moving in the past year under the leadership of resilience, which is to say, how do we tie together those practical actions like learning CPR and knowing how to shut off the water and gas to your home, tie that to financial preparedness, making sure that you have cash on hand and making sure that you have insurance, because really these are inextricably intertwined. You need both. You need to be both prepared as an individual and as a family to deal with the physical consequences of a disaster, but you also need to be prepared on the financial side as well. What do you what do you see are some of the biggest roadblocks um, to individuals being more prepared for disasters? I mean, obviously, we spend a lot of time responding to disasters. We see the the effects of you know natural hazards around the country um, affecting homeowners and individuals in different ways across the country. But you know, when we have this discussion on a national level about what it means for individuals to become more prepared, you know, what do you see are some of the the hurdles? Well, since financial preparedness is a focus for us this year as part of the administrator's annual planning guidance, let's focus on that for a moment. First of all, did you know that 44% of Americans can't put their hands on $400? Now, what that means to us as an agency is that during a disaster, there are many people that won't have cash on hand. And if they don't have cash on hand, that means they may not be able to fuel their car to evacuate. It means they may not be able to, even if they have cash in the, if they have money in the bank account, they can't actually get it out of the ATM because the power is out and the ATM is not functioning. Or they're relying on credit cards and a credit card machine is not going to be working because the communications networks are down. These are huge challenges for the individual and, the, and families, even if they have the money. Now take it to the next level. What if the reason that people don't have $400 cash in their safe at home or in their piggy bank you know, or in their sock drawer, wherever it may be, immediately available. What if they simply don't have $400 because they live paycheck to paycheck? And this is a common concern. And there are many Americans that, frankly, can't put their hands on $400 because, of, uh, that, that because they live paycheck to paycheck. Well, I can't increase, and we at FEMA can't increase someone's income by snapping our fingers. It would be nice, but we can't. So what we can do is refer people to financial counselors and help them get a plan oftentimes to get out of debt, right? Because that is a, a huge challenge here. Uh, many Americans carry a lot of debt. And if, for example, that debt is in high interest credit cards, a financial counselor could help that person consolidate their debt, lower their interest payments, and hopefully save a little bit of money every month. What we're asking from FEMA's perspective is that you save some of that money, some of that cost savings from having a lower uh, interest payment, for example, and put that towards an emergency savings account. And again, that's going to be very valuable to you when you need that cash after a disaster, but it'll also be valuable to you more broadly. If you have a health issue or your car breaks down or appliance breaks, you need to have that cash for those emergency payments. And so that's why we've partnered with organizations that focus on financial literacy and financial pl planning, nonprofit organizations that are out there providing low to no cost financial planning and financial counseling support. Because we, together as a nation, we want people to be more financially prepared for disasters and for those everyday emergencies. It just makes so much sense. Yeah, a few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, the administrator's planning er 
the administrator's annual planning guidance uh, for 2019. Can you talk? That's probably an as, aspect of what um, of some FEMA sort of doctrine or policy that most people don't really understand, or you know, the average American really doesn't encounter. Um, so, talk to me about what that planning guidance is and what it means to the agency. So it directly aligns with our five-year strategic plan. And when people ask me, what's the biggest challenge you've encountered in the past year, in your first year of, of implementing that five-year strategic plan, it's simply this, which is we wanted to implement all five years in the first year. <laughs> and we have to take a step back and say, it's going to take us another four years to implement all of this in the strategic plan. But this year, we want to focus on a few finite issues consistent with that strategic plan. And that's where the administrator comes out and gives his annual planning guidance. Now, for resilience, it, he, we agreed to focus on three areas. The first one we talked about, mitigation, and specifically about implementing the new BRIC program. Right? So that's, that's uh, number one on the APG. Number two, uh, consistent with the strategic plan, we want to close the insurance gap. But this year, realizing we can't close the entire insurance gap, which, by the way, is huge, it, on average, we can expect about $55 billion a year in annual natural disaster losses in this nation, of which about $30 billion are uninsured. So in other words, more than half of disaster losses each year are uninsured. We realize we can't alone close that gap, and we certainly can't do it in one year. But what we can do is focus specifically on one aspect, which is flood insurance. And so for this year, we're, uh, is for uh, the APG number two, is closing the flood insurance gap. Now, flood insurance will expire, uh, if not reauthorized, by the end of May. We obviously need that to be reauthorized, but we also want it to be re reauthorized with some reforms. And we want to have an opportunity to reform the program over time because it's currently $20 billion in debt, and it's in nobody's best interest to have a program that is not financially sound, to have it be deeply in debt, we need, to be, we need to have our program, frankly, look more like a private sector offering where you can just go on an app and get flood insurance. And frankly, right now, it's not that easy. So this year, we're very focused on that. And the third item under the annual planning guidance is financial preparedness, specifically for individuals. In, and we talked about uh, the need to have cash on hand. There's an insurance angle here too, which is number one, uh, for example, on flood insurance, any home can flood. Too many Americans do not have flood insurance. Only about 15% of Americans have flood insurance. And you know, I mentioned Nebraska and, and seeing firsthand the catastrophic consequences there. Only about 1% of those homeowners in Nebraska have flood insurance. 1%. Those that don't have flood insurance will not recover in the same uh, – certainly not the same way that someone that does have insurance. It will occur uh, maybe much more elongated recovery for someone that doesn't have insurance. And I don't think most people realize that FEMA can't make you whole. FEMA is meant to provide some emergency assistance, not necessarily to rebuild your home and get your life uh, back together. The example that I use from Hurricane Harvey is in Harris County, Texas. On average, we provided $4,000 in individual assistance to the uninsured disaster survivor. And while that's a good thing, we're providing some immediate uh, assistance to those in need. Those that had flood insurance, they received on average $110,000 from FEMA because they paid a low premium because it was in a low-risk area, but not a no-risk area. And again, consistent with our messaging, any home can flood. So you can see why in each of these three areas, we are, we are taking immediate actions this year 
to try to address those as part of our five-year strategic plan. So we have this five-year strategic plan, uh, really ambitious but also very simple strategic plan of developing a culture of preparedness, readying the nation for catastrophic events, and then also reducing the complexity of FEMA. Those are the three big uh, items that everybody at FEMA is really geared towards right now. Um, so at the end of the five years of this this particular strategic planning cycle, um, what do you what would you like to see from your perspective in resiliency um, all levels of government, um, the federal, state, local, and even individuals, what would you like to see an outcome be for um, all of us together? Well, first of all, I'd like to say it's very heartening to see our state and local partners embracing these goals as their own. They may not apply exactly. You know, uh, if we're focused on on flood insurance, they may be focused on renter's insurance. Great, because in some of these local communities, they see every day the fact that only 40% of renters have renter's insurance. So every day they're seeing people lose all of their belongings due to a house fire or a theft. And so that might be what a local emergency manager sees on a daily basis. But them helping to educate their constituents to help their disaster survivors understand the the value of insurance is a big deal. It's going to help us close that gap. We, of course, at FEMA have our own metrics. Uh, I mentioned for mitigation, we want to quadruple the nation's investment in mitigation. And certainly the BRIC program will help us go down that path uh, in a big way. But we need our state and local partners and individuals to also embrace that message. So we need you know, at some point in the in the not too distant future, for individuals to say, you know, my home needs to be strengthened against these risks we face. Maybe I should, when I replace my roof, make it to a build it to a higher standard, so that it can withstand, uh, you know, gale force winds, so that it can withstand potentially a, a hurricane, and storm shutters. I mean, you can imagine all of these mitigation measures that you, as a homeowner, would say, hey, it makes sense to spend a little bit more to reduce costs later. In fact, again, it's very heartening to see the, some of these numbers being repeated by our partners. The six to one number, I and mean, this is something that we all talk about at FEMA, but that every $1 invested in mitigation saves $6 uh, should a disaster occur. It's really heartening to see people embrace that and say, hey, this makes sense for me as an individual to make this investment. And in local communities as well. Local communities to be it's one thing for us to say it's important for us to build strong. It's another thing if we were to see local communities have embraced stronger building codes, for example. That's not something we at FEMA can control, but certainly we can advocate for. And if I see local communities having stronger building codes put in place, that's in everybody's best interest. In fact, there's a new number out in addition to the six to one. There's one that applies to building codes. If you're to upgrade your uh, local building code, to the current standard, on average, that could save $11 for every $1 invested, right? So you get an 11 to 1 return on investment for building codes. Big deal. And then even, you know, uh, even further along here, again, something we don't control at FEMA, but a great way to reduce risk is to prevent people from building there in the first place. So if local communities embrace the idea that there are areas that it doesn't make sense to either build or rebuild, especially if you've been hit by a disaster. I mean, you need no further evidence if homes and businesses have been destroyed in a particular area over and over again that maybe we shouldn't build there. But that 
it takes leadership and it takes sometimes politically difficult decisions by local leaders to say, we are going to amend our, our zoning and make it so that instead of having a, a home or a business built in this vulnerable area, we're going to have green space or we're going to have a park. It's a bold move, but it's one that I think that increasingly, if we see local officials embracing our message, that would be uh, a wonderful thing. It would be an in-state where you can say five years from now, we have a more resilient nation. So, you know, you talked a little bit about metrics there. Um, and I, I can understand or I can see how you can apply metrics to even uh, at the individual level. You know, you could say, well, I have 10 um, storm prone windows. And so I've, you know, acquired X number of sh- uh, shutters that protect that, or I have saved X number of dollars towards an emergency fund of, of some sort. Um, and even in the community sense, you know, I can, I can understand, um, quantifying resiliency there because you can say, well, I have so many flood prone structures or I have this flood prone area. And so we've taken steps to, you know, maybe acquire and remove those structures so that they won't be impacted by disasters in the future. How do you quantify resiliency on a national level? Because you're really looking at this, you know, sort of broad look at resiliency. How do we do that? Have, have you guys worked through that? So as part of the strategic plan, we actually have metrics assigned to all of our objectives and sub-objectives for goals one, two, and three. So, for example, on, uh, we talked about mitigation, quadrupling the nation, nation's investment. That's a metric. Uh, on insurance, it's doubling the number of pol- insurance policies. So some of those are pretty straightforward, and you say, yeah, that makes sense, and we've set these ambitious yet achievable goals. Uh, we've also said, uh, hey, you know, there are, uh, there are great ways to message this to state, our state and local partners and individuals whether it be with statistics, like we talked about not having cash on hand, and you say, I didn't have any cash on hand, and now I do, that's certainly a great metric, isn't it? it? It's saying they took action as a result of our message. And you say, well, how do we connect those two? Well, one way is the annual household survey that we've done year after year, and we can see trends over time, one, and see how uh, people's uh, actions and attitudes are changing on preparedness. But two, we, we can often add additional questions over time as we become more aware of actions that can really benefit the American public we'll put those questions in and then we'll message and see if if there's a if there's a, a, an action that follows uh, I'd also say that there are you know don't discount the value of case studies they really do I, I think resonate in a way that statistics sometimes don't so for example during my trip to Nebraska we visited a city called Beatrice, Beatrice, Nebraska. We went to Beatrice because I had heard they invested heavily in mitigation over the years. And sure enough, when I went there, I heard about it, the Great Flood of 1972, and the actions they took on the mitigation side to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And what they did is a concerted effort to buy out properties in those vulnerable areas. So through a combination of various federal funds, including uh, FEMA mitigation money, they purchased structures year, year after year until they started seeing some real dramatic improvement. They saw fewer and fewer structures impacted by floods. And again, floods in Nebraska, they don't happen every year. They, they might not even happen every five or 10 years. 
So sometimes you don't see that return investment right away. But when a disaster does occur, it's very clear. So for example, this year, for the first time in the history of Beatrice, no structures were damaged as a result of the catastrophic flooding that hit Nebraska. When I walked around areas that traditionally, or I should say historically, were occupied by homes and businesses, it was green space. It was parkland. And by the city administrator's estimate, 60 structures would have been substantially damaged or destroyed in the recent flooding. And I can think of no better example of a return on investment than standing somewhere and saying, wow, we avoided, we collectively, we, the community, the individuals, and the federal government avoided these losses, the damage to homes, to property, potentially avoided losses of life as a result of these investments. We welcome your comments and suggestions on this and future episodes. Help us to improve the podcast by rating us and leaving a comment. If you have ideas for future topics, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast. Podcast.